Titus is going to do. They also have the authority to encourage and to rebuke. Titus is told to do this here in 2.15, and we know that the elders or overseers of these local churches do that as we look at chapter 1, verse 9. So here's the main thing that I want you to get out of today. The main idea for today is this. Leaders of churches have a certain authority. Leaders of churches have a certain authority, but... This authority must be rightly understood. If we're going to exercise it well as leaders of the church, and if the church is going to understand what it looks like to be under this authority, then we need to understand it rightly. And so four things that we'll see this morning about this authority. Number one, it is word authority. Number two, it is focused authority. Number three, it is repeated authority. And finally, it is undeterred authority. Authority. It is word focused, repeated, and undeterred. So let's look look at each of these. First, it is word authority. You're thinking, what in the world does that mean? The main thing I want you to see here is that the authority that Titus is given and the authority that all church leaders are given, that's elders of, of this local church as well as elders of any local church, is found in the message itself. That is where the authority is to be found. That is the locus of authority, the message itself. It is only in his speaking and declaring God's message that Titus has authority. Only here. He declares, that's the first word of our passage, chapter 2, verse 15. He declares, as we see here, with all authority because he is declaring, he is speaking the authoritative word of God. That's why he is to do it, with all authority. So remember that Titus's authority goes back to Paul. As I said before, Paul is the apostle And as an apostle, he has sent Titus to Crete. So we know right here immediately where Titus's authority comes from. But that leads us to another question. Where does Paul's authority come from? How does this apostle have his authority? And I think we get the answer to that question as we think about Titus's authority and elders and overseer authority. We go back to Paul. We get an answer to that question in the first verses of this epistle. So go back to the opening of Titus. Those first four verses, Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And here's where I want you to focus at this point in verse three. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. What we see here is a revelation of God given to Paul. Paul is entrusted with this word. He's entrusted with spreading this word, teaching this word, with declaring and preaching this word. And all of this that he's entrusted with is by command of God himself. So there's our answer to this question. Where does Paul's authority come from? Paul has been entrusted with the preaching of God's revealed word. Paul, the apostle's authority, is word authority. And it is this word that carries along his apostleship. Always, always. And we know this because if you read the opening verses of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, 
There Paul's talking about people who would preach another gospel, that there's only one gospel, no others. And so people would come along and say, this is the good news. Uh, Jesus has come to do this. It becomes circumcised and then you can follow Jesus or whatever else. And Paul says that if anyone were to preach to you another gospel, let him be accursed. And he even says this. He says, even if I or an angel from heaven were to preach to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. What Paul is saying there is even if I, the apostle, were to preach to you something other than this gospel, I'm accursed. In other words, the authority does not rest with the title apostle nor with his status, it rests with the word. And insofar as Paul, as the apostle, brings this word, he has the authority of God in his ministry. So it is this word that carries along his apostleship and it is this word that carries along the authority of the leadership in every church, every church. It must be word authority. In his commentary on this verse, John MacArthur writes this. I think it's very important to see this idea He says, pastors, and I would extend this beyond pastors to shepherds of the church, elders. I understand elder and shepherd or elder and pastor and overseer to be the same person, that all of the elders within a church are the pastors of the church. In other words, they're the shepherds of the church. And so he says this, pastors have no personal spiritual authority at all. None. I have no personal spiritual authority as I get up here on Sunday morning to speak to you. Zero. He goes on to say this. They speak authoritatively only when they speak the word of God accurately. Similarly, J.I. Packer says this. The role of the man in the pulpit or the counseling conversation is simply to let the passages say their peace through him. That's it. And so this goes for uh, a pastor as he gets up, a preacher as he gets up and preaches the word. It goes for a pastor as he shepherds the flock one-on-one. In fact, this morning it was a, it was a, great, uh, a great opportunity. We come together before the service and we were praying together and there were some significant prayer concerns that came up. And one of the things that I appreciated is Josh Smith pulled out a passage from the scriptures and read that to the person who needed to be comforted by that scripture. That's the kind of thing that the body does for one another and that is the kind of thing that elders are tasked with doing. Now let me say this, for those considering vocational ministry, but really this applies to all of us, this is the problem with preachers who don't preach the Bible. This is the fundamental problem. We can always talk about, well, that preaching or that preaching or this preaching or that preaching, and we can sort of grade it all and we can compare it all, but this is kind of ground zero if we are to identify what is wrong with preachers who don't preach the Bible. Is it just kind of less than ideal? Is it just kind of off-center a little bit? What is the fundamental problem with preachers who don't preach the Bible? And it's this. In so doing, they functionally think that they themselves have the authority. 
Preachers who'd get up in front of a group of Christians and preach without preaching the Bible are saying, hear me, listen to me, I've got something to tell you. I am an authority on this subject. I'm kind of a guru on this whole Jesus thing. I want you to listen to me and take this in. I'm your authority. That is what that sort of preaching communicates. Whether it is intentional, being charitable, or not, that is what it communicates. There is no personal authority. There is God's authority. And God's authority is housed, found, exclusively in his word. So what does this mean for us as a local church if we are to sort of apply this to ourselves? If we are to apply these truths to ourselves as a local church? Well, authority is not personal or positional. And I think this has something to say to elders, but not just to elders. I think it, you know, and I think as we go through this message today, I think this, all of this, this would apply to anyone within the church who has a leadership position. Because in fact, the way it ought to be understood is that any leadership position within the church is an extension of the church's elders. That the shepherds of the church, they, they give the authority to those people who lead these various areas and they oversee there's the overseer part. They oversee these individuals as they exercise a certain level of authority and leadership in those various positions, in those various ministries, initiatives, or, or groups of people. This is the case for our gospel community group leaders. So gospel community group leaders are ultimately accountable to the shepherding elder who oversees those groups. And, and those, there's a mentoring relationship that exists there. This is the case for anyone who would lead men's and women's theology or, or lead any of the other groups within our church, or children's ministry, administrative even, all of these, the deacons. All of this falls under the authority and leadership of the elders. So really this could be extended across the board. And here's, go back to the point that I made a moment ago. Authority is not personal or positional and what I mean there is that it is not to be exercised out of one's personality. Authority is not found in charisma. Now, in our world today, that is the case. We elect people sometimes simply based on charisma, perhaps. We, people rise to positions of prominence and positions of power because they have a particular way about them that draws people. They have a good personality. They're likable. Or maybe they have a set of experiences in their life that make them admirable or respectable on account of those experiences. Or maybe they have a status, a particular status out in the world. And it is on, on that basis, perhaps, that they lead or have authority. None of that, none of that is to be the case for leaders in churches. Because this authority is not personal based on one's personality based on one's experiences. It is not positional. It is not based on the, the gravitas, the weightiness of one's credentials or where one sits or how one has a position within the church. This authority, by contrast, is biblical authority. It is the authority to communicate and convey that which truly has authority. And that is God's holy scriptures. That's what has authority. Another application is that a healthy church 
As a result of all of this, a healthy church is one in which leaders know and love the word. And as I said before, that, that, that's all of the, the leadership, the elders of the church, but that's also deacons in the church. That's also anyone who would lead in any capacity within the church. A healthy church is one in which leaders know and love the word and the people gladly, gladly hear and heed the word as it is communicated by those leaders. If you ask me the question, what would be my objective? Or, you know, you talk about a vision. What's our vision? And we have a vision. Well, I'll I'll mention that in a moment. But ultimately, these are the kinds of things that constitute our vision. Our vision is that we have a healthy church. And a big part of what it means for us to have a healthy church is that we have a church where the leaders know and love the word of God and the people gladly hear and heed that word as it is communicated by those very leaders. That cannot help but to be a healthy and effective church for the glory of God. It can't help but to be. It's just naturally the case that it will be. So Titus's authority and our authority as elders of Four Corners Church is a word authority. We see that even with this first word, declare these things. As he goes on to talk about Titus's authority, it is in declaring God's word. So that's first, it is a word authority. Secondly, it is focused authority. Focused authority. Notice what Titus is to declare with all authority. What exactly is he to declare? These things. Declare these things with all authority. Don't just declare whatever you would like with all authority, you have authority insofar as you declare these specific things as we see at the beginning of verse 15. What things? What things is Paul referring to? Well, we spent the last month talking about it. It's chapter two, verses two to 14. Look at the, look at the first verse of chapter two. But as for you, he's speaking to Titus, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on and he talks about that. Verse two, older men. And we go, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, bond servants. And then we have this glorious presentation of the gospel, which we have over there on the wall in verses 11 to 14. This is what he's referring to. This is exactly what he means when he says these things. Essentially, it's this. God's grace in Christ and the life that is to be lived in accordance with it. That is precisely what we've, been spent, what we've spent the last month looking at as we've, as we've read through chapter two, starting in verse two and going up through verse 14. God's grace in Christ, that's chapter two, 11 to 14. That's the gospel foundation. And then the gospel life that flows out of that, which is verses two all the way to verse 10. That is exactly what Titus is to declare with all authority, these things. This together See that, this together is the focus of Titus's authority. And this must be the focus of all authority in the church. So a few major applications, I think, emerge at this point. The first flows out of what we've discussed already in previous weeks. And hear this, we are not authorized to preach and teach only a part of this whole When I started this series on Titus, that was one of the major 
things that I brought up. That's one of the major points that I made at the very beginning is that as we come to Titus, we find a great example of how grace and godliness work together. We talk about God's unmerited favor in Christ and God's love for us even though we sin. And so we have that held up as God's grace, but we understand that God's grace trains us to live a certain kind of life. God's grace saves us from a certain kind of life that we are not to live in any longer. And it trains us in accordance with the fact that we've been saved from that to this. And so grace and godliness are moving all throughout this book of Titus. And so I say it again, we are not authorized to preach and teach only a part of this whole. You cannot preach and teach verses 11 to 14 and forget about verses 2 through 10. And you cannot do the opposite either. Both of those go together. In his commentary on Titus, Brian Chappell says this, Paul's strident exhortation reminds us that if we teach these things, which is what I just referred to, i.e. grace despite sin and obedience through grace, some will accuse us of promoting license on the one hand, and some will accuse us of being legalists on the other hand. Still, we must not cease from making the message of grace and godliness our standard. Grace and godliness always together held together as that these things that we must declare with authority. So that's the first thing I want you to see. The second is that we are not authorized to replace this focus with something else. If this is what Titus is to declare with all authority, and this is what us as church leaders are to declare with all authority, we are not authorized to replace this with another thing, another set of ideas. You know, one of the things that you could typically find is where you have sort of hobby horse preaching. And that's one of the reasons why we practice expositional preaching here at this church. Just one of the many reasons is because when you have expositional preaching and you go from verse to verse, the Bible governs what you say. Now, that's done more or less accurately. As we go through the passage, there may be disagreements of interpretation, disagreements on how application should come up out of the text, but the point is that the text governs what you say. The alternative is that the preacher has his own preconceived ideas. He has his own kind of hobby horses, the things that he likes to talk about, things that he's inclined to speak on. And that's what you get all the time. If you don't get expositional preaching, you perhaps will get hobby horse preaching, focusing on all these other sorts of things. One of the things that expository preaching does is it forces us to deal with the message of the Bible, and the message of the Bible is always Christ. It is always Christ. Whether it is the exalted Christ and the grace that we have through him, or it's Christ being formed in us through the gospel life, it is always Christ as he emerges from the pages of scripture. And this is one of the reasons why in our vision statement we have as the first part, building on exposition, and the second part, centering on Christ. And that is to say we are centering on this. We are centering on what we find here in Titus 2, 11 to 14, that the grace of God has appeared. In other words, that Christ has appeared and that Christ has redeemed us. He's purified us. He possesses us so that we're his people. We're zealous for good works as we renounce sin and as we cling to God. So we are not authorized to replace Third, as leaders, our authority exists 
to promote gospel living in all of the people under our care. You know, as leaders of various ministries, as leaders of this church, as elders, but also as leaders of various ministries within, within the church, there are plenty of decisions to be made. Plenty of ways that leadership and authority is exercised as various things have to get done. And that's the case for anyone in the church who would, who would be a leader, who would have authority over a particular domain or over a particular group of individuals. And here's what I want you to see. Although there are many decisions to be made, the focus must always be on gospel lives. That's what we're focusing on always as leaders. That Christ might be formed in the people. That the people might see the grace of God that has appeared and might trust in that grace and might be formed by that grace, trained by that grace to go out and live godly lives. So as leaders, this should be our constant attention. This should be our constant focus. We're looking for gospel lives. We're trying to form gospel lives. The kind of lives we see described in chapter two throughout these verses. It means that our time and energy should be focused here. And this is not always easy, I'll tell you. Sometimes we come to, we, we have our elders meetings, we have elders meetings once a month, and there are a lot of things to discuss. And it's very easy when we get into those just to sort of knock out decisions, things that have to be done, little things associated, little things and big things associated with all kinds of stuff. But we are called by God's word to be focused in the midst of all of that on forming Christ, gospel lives being lived out among the people of Four Corners Church. That is what we are to do with all authority, as Titus is told here. So it is word authority, it is focused authority, and thirdly, I want you to see that it is repeated authority. Titus is told that in declaring these things, he must do two things, exhort and rebuke. And actually, in the original text, it's just it's three verbs, speak and exhort and rebuke. But the way that the ESV has rendered it here, declare these things, exhort and rebuke. These are the two very specific tasks of the one who would, who would teach and preach and of the one who would lead and have authority within the church to exhort and to rebuke. Both of these verbs are in the present tense, which indicates that this is repeated activity. In other words, Paul is saying to Titus, keep on exhorting, keep on rebuking, do this over and over again. This is an ongoing activity. I'll comment in a moment on these two verbs specifically, but for now, I want you to see this basic idea. Authority in the church requires repeated application. And this tells us a few things about leaders. It tells us that leaders must be realistic. Realistic. Satan is always trying to topple believers over. He's always trying to, to rip believers from the faith. He's always trying to render us useless so that we don't bear fruit, so that we don't go out and be zealous for good works and therefore bring glory to our Father in heaven. Satan hates that stuff. And so he's always working in every individual family, in every individual life. Do you know that? Are you aware of that? Are you aware that Satan is, is active in your in your life and in your home, even today? 
even now, he's working to dismantle your faith. He's working to tear away your assurance in Christ. He's working to convince you that you are not loved by your Father. He's working to convince you that you don't need to renounce sin. That sin is okay in good measure. It's okay in moderation. That is the kind of thing that Satan is saying to all of us. And so as leaders with authority within the church to exhort and rebuke, we must be realistic about this. We must see that there is always a need and there's always a threat. Every person that we interact with, and by the way, this is for the whole body. Every person, do you know every person that you are interacting with on Sunday morning as we're getting our coffee and we're chit-chatting about our week and all that? Do you know that within every person that you talk to, there is a need and a threat? There are a set of needs and a set of threats. And God has called us to exhort and rebuke one another in such a way that those needs are met, those spirit, just like back here when we prayed this morning, it's amazing work of the Holy Spirit as we're back there and we see as we're starting to pray over all these, all these things that came up. And God was meeting those needs and protecting those hearts. So it must be realistic. An elder's authority must be in this way. It must also be attentive. Specific needs and threats are monitored that is the idea behind shepherding groups. So we have these various community groups and there's an elder or a shepherd over various groups and the idea is that in, in a perfect setup that the gospel community group leader would be funneling prayer concerns and pastoral care needs up to the shepherding elder and then when we meet as elders as well as when we talk throughout the month that we as, el as an elder board would be talking about these concerns so that when we meet for our elders meeting we have a list of people with real needs and real threats and we're attentive to those, we monitor those, we maintain our attention on those situations. Leaders must be attentive. And finally, leaders must be tireless. Tireless. This repeated application of authority is labor. It's work. It is hard work to be repeatedly, continually, constantly working with the people of God in such a way that you are exhorting them and rebuking them. That is hard work. It requires wisdom and discernment and you're gonna overdo it in some situations and then you're gonna have to, to figure out how to offset that and you're going to go about being attentive to needs and you want to meet those needs and trying to figure out how to do that. That is labor and that is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, to the Christians there, he says this, we ask you Brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, similar idea to rebuke, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. As we do our membership pledges at the end of the service, and I'll say more about that at that time, one of the things that comes up is submission to the elders within the local church. This is an idea found throughout the New Testament. It's not an idea that's oftentimes talked about in churches. Uh, just like things like church discipline are oftentimes not talked about in churches. But they get, a, they, get, they get attention in the scriptures. So we have to be attentive to these things. That these things are a reality. And in a moment we will do that at the end of our service. And that's a way of saying that we hear the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. We hear these words that there are those who are appointed over you. And by the way, I should say this. The, the nature of an eldership 
is that every single person on that elder board has elders, if that makes sense. We are submissive to one another as elders. Not a single, it's not as though we stand above. No one stands above how God has, has effectively structured the church, that each elder is submitting to the elder board as a whole, lovingly and humbly. So let me look at these two words, exhorting and rebuking, exhorting. This is the idea of urging someone on in something, pulling them forward. This uh, makes me think uh, of a lot of times that we would be doing runs in the Marine Corps. We'd be running, and not at boot camp, because there's no encouraging whatsoever or exhorting at boot camp. It's only rebuking. But after that, there were plenty of times where we'd be running on drill weekend, or we'd be doing PT test, we'd be doing all different kinds of things, and we would be running, and there would be folks who would be in the back, you know, and they'd be, they'd be struggling, and they'd be running and kind of keeping up, trying to keep up, maybe not really keeping up, and everybody would run and get to the end, and one of the things that you would see is they would go back, some of the, some of the Marines would go back, and they would say, come on, come on, come on, and they would encourage and pull them forward, urge, some of them would take a lot of urge, urge them forward, <laughs> pull them forward. And one of the things that's interesting about that, two things really, is they would be doing it from the front. And that I think corresponds with what we are to do as elders. We are encouraging in this thing, urging on in this thing as we lead by example from the front. Not from the rear. Come on, come on, pushing. It's not that. It's doing it already as an example and pulling along the people of God following our example. That's what we find in 1 Peter chapter 5 in the opening verses as he talks about being an example. Another thing I think that's interesting for us is that when, we, when that running would take place, you would go back and try to get them, you would say this, come on, Marine, you can do it, Marine, come on, Marine. And here's what I want you to see. What you are doing in that situation is you are reminding that person who they are. And that's exactly what we do as Christians, as leaders. Come on, Christian. Come on, Christian. You are a child of God. You are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You are precious to your master. You are owned by Christ. You're a bondservant of Christ. Come on, Christian. That's exactly what we are doing as we encourage and pull forward and urge the people of God. That must be happening. Continually, as I said before, repeatedly in the local church. And it is encouragement to stay the course. So Acts 11.23, Barnabas speaks to the believers in Antioch. And it says this, he exhorted them all to remain faithful. To remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Staying the course, following Christ, not veering to the left or to the right. First Peter 5:12, Peter says that his exhortations are geared towards the people standing firm in God's grace. Do you see the image there? That exhortation helps us to stand firm in Christ, to stand firm in everything that we've seen throughout chapter 2, both in our trust in God's grace and in our moving forward in godliness. Encouragement does all of that. It pulls us along the path which we are already on. 
And then in Hebrews 3.13, the writer says, exhort one another. By the way, this is everybody. We're all to be doing this. This is especially to be done by the leaders, by the elders, but it is to be done by all of us. It says this, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know what that tells us? That if the elders, if the leaders in a church fail to exhort, then the people will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is happening to you. That is why you need the church. That's why I need the church. Do we understand that? That we can't just stay at home on Sunday mornings and act as though the church doesn't exist or act as though it's just about a podcast. Because when we do that, we become hardened to the deceitfulness of sin because we lose the exhorting grace of God in our lives. And that is something that comes specifically and primarily from the leaders. But it is also something that should come from everyone in the church. Exhort one another every day. Every day. When was the last time you exhorted your brother or sister in Christ? Urged them on in their most holy faith. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this leads us, of course, to the second verb, to rebuke. Not a, not a popular word, not a popular idea. The truth is that Christians can and often do become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the exhortation is meant to prevent that from happening. That being hardened to the deceitfulness of sin does not happen. But if it does, when it does, leaders are to rebuke. That is why leaders in authority must do this. And to rebuke is, is first and foremost to expose or highlight. Because here's the thing that sin does in our lives. It deceives us and blinds us. I mean, how many times have you had a person in your family or in your life or maybe within the church that you saw, that you knew they were a believer, they had fallen into some kind of sin, and you were trying to communicate with them, and it's like you're talking to a brick wall. You can't get in. They just don't get it. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't understand how they don't get this. This doesn't make any sense to me. This is so obvious. What is wrong with you? And you're like banging your head up against the wall. You can't get through. And it's because sin blinds us to its presence. It deceives us and blinds us. And that is why the church sometimes must, that is why exhortation must sometimes turn into rebuke. Because sometimes there is persistence in this sin. And to rebuke is to pull us back from it. And so in Titus 1.13 it says that Titus is to rebuke sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So rebuke is meant to bring us back to health. It is meant to bring us back to that kind of doctrine which creates in us shalom, which creates in us fullness, fullness of joy, fullness of peace, fullness of resolve to, to obey Jesus as Lord. That is what ultimately we pull people back to within the local church, from deceit, from blindness to the light. And this rebuke by its very nature intensifies as persistence in sin intensifies. Titus 3, 10 to 11, ask for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So when we talk about rebuke, there's not one size that fits all. 
Rebuke is one of those things that must be exercised carefully and wisely. And by the way, it always builds on what I said before, attentiveness. It's not this kind of just out of left field kind of rebuke where you haven't watched anything in my life. And maybe you're wondering, you know, uh, you've never even, you don't even know anything about me. You don't even know what my struggles are, what's going on in my life. And now you're just coming at me with a rebuke? Really? That's not the kind of rebuke. It's a rebuke that is built on attentiveness, that's built on listening much, speaking less. But when the time comes, if there's persistence in sin, that rebuke must intensify to the the extent to which sin intensifies. And that ultimately results in church discipline if there is persistence and there's a lack of repentance and ultimately excommunication from the church if that person is unwilling to repent. That's what we find in 1 Corinthians 5. That's what we find in Matthew 18. Always with a view to restoring and always with mercy and grace and love, but it must happen nonetheless. And one thing is certain, People don't like to be rebuked. I don't like to be rebuked. You don't like to be rebuked. None of us do. And that leads to our final point this morning. It is undeterred authority. To be undeterred is to continue in a course of action despite a bad situation or a set of difficulties. He says here, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. If anyone has had to exercise authority and lead in a bad situation, it was Titus. He is in a context where, quoting from verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Not just a few. Not just a handful of guys over in the corner who are keeping to themselves. There are many who don't listen to authority. They don't care about authority. They dismiss authority. They're insubordinate. They say all kinds of crazy things. They're empty talkers and they're deceivers. They are working strategically in a crafty manner to unsettle the faith of God's people. That's what's happening in Crete. As Paul tells Titus to go there, to stay there and do this. He is ministering in a culture where a large portion of the people can be characterized as always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's the context. That's his neighborhood. That's Titus's ministry field. So I don't think anyone really has had a worse kind of situation than Titus, maybe equally bad, but this is the situation in which Titus finds himself. And even in a situation this difficult, He must not allow anyone to disregard his leadership. Paul says to him, Titus, in the exercising of your authority, let no one disregard you. Do this. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke and do it with all authority. Let no one disregard you, Titus. And that must be the attitude of every leader who leads in the local church with word authority and with focused authority. Authority and emphasize those points. It is the objective always, it should be the objective always of a local church to cultivate always within its leaders this desire 
to always be bringing forward the word of God to the people of God and that the authority of God is that the authority is found there in God's word and to always be focusing this not on just decision making or on lording over people or anything like that but to be focusing this on forming gospel lives it is out of that kind of word authority and focused authority that authority should also be undeterred undeterred by opposition. We must be undeterred in carrying out the work that the Lord has called us to, no matter how difficult the situation, even a situation like that of Titus. And I want to end this morning by highlighting the importance of having a plurality of elders in the church. This is very important because you know what? The elders of this church and the elders of every single church throughout history and everywhere across space and time are sinners. We are as we all are. We are working through this life, we are moving through this life, being sanctified by God's grace, being conformed to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so I believe, and I think the Bible clearly teaches, that a plurality of elders is God's natural corrective against the abuse of power. It's God's natural corrective against the abuse of this authority that we've been talking about as we've gone through this entirely. This authority is a shared authority. It is an authority with checks and balances on the exhorting and rebuking. So what if an elder gets a little out of control in his rebuking? Then that's where the other elders come along and say, brother, uh, hold on a second, let's, let's rethink this. Let's do this together. Let's think through this together. That is the self-correcting of a group of elders, of a plurality of elders, that this exercise of authority in exhorting and in rebuking might be done well. We know that Titus will soon leave Crete, as Paul indicates in chapter 3, verse 12. It says that Titus will go to Paul at Nicopolis. And so ultimately, the authority to exhort and rebuke in the case of these churches in Crete will fall on the elders. And that is where it falls today, at Four Corners Church, and that is where it ought to fall in every church. So we find in our text today a gospel mandate. As we finish this morning, leaders of churches are given an authority that is found exclusively in the word. An authority that is focused on the gospel and the kind of life that flows out of that gospel. Not just grace, not just godliness, but grace rightly understood pointing to godliness, and godliness right, rightly understood, coming out of grace. Grace and godliness perfectly together. This is the focus of all authority and leadership, an authority that must be repeatedly applied and an authority that must be undeterred. Let's pray. Our sovereign king, we thank you for prayer. We thank you for prayer in reflection on your word. God, we thank you for the authority that you have put in your word, the authority that your word has. And God, we see the authority of your word all the time as, as your spirit takes your word and applies it to our lives and transforms us. And we see the power of your word, how effective it is in our lives. God, I pray for us as a church that 
all the way from the elders down throughout the leadership structures of the church, that, that we would be those who find authority not in our own personalities or in our own positions, but in your holy word. And God, we would be those who use our authority well, that our authority would be geared towards Christ being formed in the people of God here. God, that we would be repeatedly applying this authority as we are constantly in the business of exhorting and rebuking God, that you would, that you would expose sin and deceit where it is found, and God, that you would, you would help us to, to help one another come back to the path and to move forward along the path. And Father, finally, would you give us courage as leaders, as elders, would you give us courage as a church, anyone in leadership here and all of us, give us courage to stand on the truth and to be undeterred in this authority, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.